0: Rocketed as a being from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hello everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Neumeyer, and before we get into this week's comics, uh, I would like to do something that I should have done last episode, but I was so busy uh, trying to make sure I got all the information for the email petitions to Ian Sattler that I forgot to mention this. So first of all, I would like to send a huge shout-out and a thank you to Steve Yunus at the Superman homepage. Uh, he has decided to, or he has agreed, actually, to, to post, uh, this show as it, as it, as it, um, as each new episode comes out on the front page of the Superman homepage. And, um, I'm telling you right now, just, uh, since he's done that, I think I've doubled the number of people that have listened to an episode. So I think that's really cool. And I really want to thank Steve for doing that. I'm sorry I didn't thank you last episode, but thank you very much. It means a lot to me to have my little show on the Superman, uh, website on the net. Second, I want to remind everybody that um, we're still trying to send emails to Ian Sattler to get the Dark Knight of Metropolis uh, story reprinted into the trades. Uh, so make sure you send a nice, polite, concise, and short email to ian.sattler at dccomics.com. And make sure you mention that you heard about it on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. So, um, without further ado, we will go into our first issue. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two true Team together for the first time in a tale of tragedy and triumph. World's finest comics presents Superman and Possess. In your satin tights fighting for your rights, and the old red, white, and blue. World's Finest Comics, number 204, cover date of August of 1971. It was actually published on June the 3rd, uh, with a nice cover by Neil Adams that actually shows Superman and one woman just standing in the middle. On one side, we see a riot and the police. And Superman's asking, "How can the killing of a student in a campus riot in 1971?" And on the other half of the cover, we see a desolate uh, waste. Uh, looks like it's just been destroyed, and all that's left is smoke covering over the ground. As one of the women shouts, "Cause the death of everyone on Earth two hundred years later." And of course, it says, "We challenge the you to guess the one, the only way to prevent this terrible tragedy." This story, uh, the title of the story is Journey to the Edge of Hope. The writer is Denny O'Neill. The art is by Dick Dillon and Joe Gaiella. And the editor is Julie Schwartz. And Superman, of course, as always, was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. So uh, we're at a campus of a large Eastern University that shall go uh, uh, unnamed. And we've got uh, students getting ready to riot as the police look like they're ready. Well, actually, they're guards. But it looks like they're ready to... uh, Take any of them down that they can. And as Superman notes this, he flies off to the Galaxy Broadcasting Building. And as he leaves the file room, once again, um, we see someone else finding him there. It's like he's really well known for being in that file room, which he might actually be. Uh, but this time it's Perry White. He's got an idea for a story for uh, Clark to write involving the computer dating service. Clark reminds him he's a TV reporter now. But uh, Perry reminds him that he's still a newspaper man at heart, and besides, he got Edge's edition, and he wants uh, the story for the Sunday edition. So, Perry, uh, so Clark agrees to do the story, and then as he walks off, uh, Perry is wondering, why did he do that? He doesn't think they're anything but hogwash, but hopefully he'll come up, uh, Clark will come up with something good. Meanwhile, at a small boutique in Greenwich Village, I Ching has come to say hi to Diana former princess of Themyscira, uh, current Wonder Woman without powers, um, saying that he's got, he's got an idea for her and realizes that she's been so busy uh, fighting against evil that her romantic life has been fraught with woe. And so he gives her a paper for a computer dating service as well. So she fills out hers, uh, and as she leaves, I Ching is basically wondering, why did he do that? but we don't know. And so a few days later, we see Clark and Diana heading towards the same street corner as uh, Diana thinks to herself that she's supposed to meet the man of her dreams on this corner. Uh, And he'll be wearing a carnation, which of course Clark's wearing. And the two of them come face to face and realize that They've been set up with each other somehow. As they start having small talk, Clark mentions that they're supposed to be appearing on a radio talk show, which I don't really understand unless it's part of a, for part of a story. As they're as they three young uh, looks like gang members come up and try to hassle them for their money, uh, Clark is ready to go into his coward act, but Diana says, "Hang on, I'll handle these guys." And Pretty easily, actually, takes down all three guys using her judo, karate, and kung fu moves that she has learned recently from I Ching. And as they walk off, uh, the leader of the gang—let's uh, see, what's his? Name, which doesn't have a name—decides um, that you know what? Uh, anyone that wrongs them needs to be wronged back. And he's got a gun uh, that he calls Baby, and that somehow he's hidden in his shirt, which you would think it would easily fall out because it's a shirt with the sleeves missing and it's unbuttoned all the way down to the pants. So I don't, I don't know how that happens. But anyway, um, anyway, inside the WMCC building, which also makes no sense because Clark, why would Clark be doing a radio interview for a competing broadcaster? Anyway, um, they get on the elevator and they head up towards, uh, well, it doesn't say what floor they're headed up to, but as they escape, uh, Exit the elevator. Suddenly, they find themselves in a cold vista of sheer destination or desolation. And as Clark tries to figure out what's going on, they get out of the elevator. The doors close. Clark uses his X-ray vision to see what's going on on the other side of the doors, and there's nothing there—not even the elevator apparently. And suddenly, Diana can't breathe. So Clark uh, real—so Clark realizes that the air contains mostly nitrogen and hydrogen, and very little oxygen. Changes to Superman for some reason, and flies her off as quick as he can, looking for an oxygen pocket. Finally, he finds one, appears to be deep under the ground, and carrying her, digs in and gets her there just to see, says she nearly suffocated. So Superman leaves her there and then builds an adobe uh, to try to keep the air in it so that she can stay alive while he goes and investigates what's going on and finds out where they are. And he notices that the place is barren, no life or plant life, when suddenly he sees a large tower. He flies past it, tries to look inside, but his x-ray vision can't penetrate the outside, so he decides to crash through. But as soon as he does, uh, some handcuffs suddenly shoot out from the ceiling and, you know, ensnare him. But, of course, he's Superman, so he just breaks through. And then, of course, there's some ray blasters that blast them, but they don't do anything. He just ties them up in a bow. And he crashes through this large door to be met by a giant computer. And it, and it reveals to him that this is 200 years in the future on Earth, in the year 2171. And that this is what uh, the world will be like. Certain events are left unchanged, which... Once again, it's confusing because I think this is the third or fourth story we've had that has dealt with the fact of, of time travel. Um, the robot tells Superman he developed the capacity to cast probes into the past and found that he was able to implant thoughts into the human mind. Therefore, that's how Perry and I Ching um, came up both came up with the same idea at the same time to use the computer dating service that brought Clark and Diana together. Therefore, it's all been part of this robot's plan. And he tells them that there's a young man at a campus riot that is going to be killed. And unfortunately, this man is also who's supposed to save humanity uh, should he survive. Uh, Superman asks how he will save humanity. Uh, The robot just uh, kind of brushes that off by saying it's highly complicated, but rest assured, he will unless he perishes prematurely. So uh, Superman looks into another monitor and sees that there's those three guys from the alley are headed towards Di- the adobe that he built for Diana. So suddenly we do a little flashback to see that the guys followed the heroes into the radio building. They take the same elevator up and find themselves in the same desolate area, of course. Suddenly they can't breathe, so they start heading towards the adobe, which is where Superman saw them. They get inside because there's a door that Superman constructed, I forgot to mention, and Diana sets up to, you know, defend herself. Uh, The head of the gang uh, pulls out his gun, you know, baby, and is about to shoot Diana when Superman crashes through and, uh, you know, locks the bullets. Then he pinches the end and with a flick of the finger, or actually a snap of his finger, basically knocks out the head guys. The other two fly headfirst at Superman only to, you know, knock themselves out against his body of steel. So Superman and Diana uh, hold each other and Diana basically starts saying that she wishes that they could have gotten um, more, acquaint- more, you know, been better acquaintances and maybe even really good friends. And uh, Superman says that in another second or so he'll feel like kissing her and that they both know they shouldn't. And although she seems disappointed because she does say darn it, she does agree. So basically uh, Superman flies her down through a tunnel and they go from the adobe to the building they were just in with the robot. And Superman's going to uh, have it explain everything that it explained to him, to Diana, but it says that his energy is finally exhausted and he's dying and basically dies. So basically there's nothing left on, uh, alive on Earth anymore. So one panel, we get the idea that Superman has explained everything to Diana, that they realize they need to get back to the past which is actually their present, and try to save that kid. And, of course, they've both seen the kid in the monitor, so they kind of know who to save. So they fly back to the Adobe. Superman grabs the three men, and they all fly, headed uh, headed towards that where the elevator was. And Superman flies faster and faster, gaining velocity, and suddenly is able to crack the time barrier as they see what almost looks like the elevator forming or reforming around them. Suddenly, they're just standing in the elevator, and it takes them back down to the ground floor in 1971, leaving the hoods there, uh, which Superman does mention he's planning to come back once he also repairs the damage to the building that he does as he breaks through to fly out towards that, uh, the same campus from earlier. Superman uh, drops off Wonder Woman as he, as they both need to look for, you know, the guy that's supposed to save humanity. So Diana tries to use words to stop them, but they pretty much just say, blow it out your ear. And uh, but Diana spots a young man about to use cocktail. He's got a bottle and it's got a flame coming out of it. She basically flings herself at him to try to stop him, but he still ends up losing his grip on it. And it causes a car to explode. Superman, while talking to the guards, they all see the young man is standing in front of in front of that car still with the flames so they think he's caused the problem on purpose and they are about to shoot him but superman um basically tries to stop them real quick with a nudge to their guns but that doesn't work there is one shot um we do hear the kablam but suddenly the car explodes with the flames at the gas tank suddenly we see diana come up behind superman and he appears she appears to have the young student that they were supposed to save in fact he's wearing the exact outfit However, uh, one of the guards has been shot, who also has a hairdo very similar to the student, and unfortunately, he's he died. He was shot through the heart, and they don't know who could have done it. Uh, it. Could have been made by a stray bullet or from a bit of steel from the explosion. So all of a sudden, Diana gets the idea. Oh, do you think he was the one we were looking for? And Superman basically goes, "I don't know, Diana. We'll never know until it's too late." and then there's a we leave with the line a quote apparently those who live by the sword so shall they die and perhaps a world will die with them okay my notes on this story and this issue uh was one was reprinted in diana wonder woman volume three okay page 14 of the story why am i going all the way to oh 14 is where we learn uh Basically, I don't have too much of a problem with the first 14 pages of the story, other than the fact that Superman says, hey, look, there's a possible riot. But there's nothing I can do about it right now, so I'm going to, uh, you know, head to work. And also, of course, Dylan once again forgets that Clark doesn't have the S-curl, but we should be used to that by now. Uh, Basically, by the time we get to the 14th page, um, I... We finally get a name for the leader of the Hoods, and his name is Skog. Because apparently Denny O'Neill does not believe in giving people real names like Dan or Fred. It's got to be Skog. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's easier to remember that way. But hmm. uh, Page 15. Um, it's really weird. The, the way the art goes just a few pages earlier, it looks like Superman has to fly quite a distance before he's able to find a pocket of air and then builds the adobe around it and it looks it looked a lot like it was built kind of below ground but later on page 15 we see three hoods with no I mean yes they're running out of air but they're easily able to find the adobe apparently on the surface which first of all it makes it seem a lot closer to the elevator and Also on the surface, so I'm not sure what happened there. I don't know if there was a miscommunication or what happened. Page 17. I'm not completely sure why they shouldn't kiss. Maybe because it would mess up their mission or delay them or something. I'm not sure, but I don't. I mean, at this point, I can't see why they can't kiss. Superman's not really dating Lois, although, and it's not like he hasn't kissed another woman since just since the Bronze Age, uh, and I don't know if Wonder Woman's dating anybody at this point. Maybe that's why Maybe they're seeing other people so they shouldn't, but I don't really didn't really understand why they shouldn't be kissing, even though they both really want to. Um, nine, pages 19 and 20, when Superman uh, has Diana and the thugs and is flying them back through the time stream, he doesn't wrap them up in his cape, so how are they not burning up? I mean, Superman has to fly at faster than light speeds In order to, um, he has to fly at faster than light speeds in order to break the time barrier. Without wrapping them up in in his cape, they should basically be dust by the time he gets to the elevator. That's all I'm gonna say. Page 21, which is, of course, the one where guards are about or have their shotguns aimed at the student as he watches the the fire that that he accidentally caused. Maybe, I I don't know my early 70s vernacular, but the guards, let me quote their dialogue. I'm going to pot me a long-haired freak, and I'm going to pot another. Pot, pot, like a vernacular for, you know, marijuana, and pot is something you cook stuff in, but meaning the same thing as, like, shooting somebody doesn't make much sense. Also, they both act like they're going to shoot at different people, But they're both aiming at the same guy. So basically, he's not going to pot another one. He's going to pot him too, actually. So not sure what happened there. Um, Page 22. I'm not completely sure how there is a question as to whether or not they saved the right guy. We saw the the computer specifically uh, shows the student that gets shot, or that gets killed. This is the student, the one Diana saves. He's wearing the exact same outfit with the same hairdo. Yes, a guard gets killed, but he's not wearing the same outfit. And then the two heroes go completely crazy. Uh, Diana's like, do you think he was the person we we, we were looking for? Well, answer me, Superman. Was he? Like She's going crazy. And then Superman basically, like he's just lost crypto or something grabs her by the shoulders and you'd almost think he's shaking her and he's like i don't know diana we'll never know until it's too late it's just like really overly dramatic uh it's just kind of weird i just don't understand how they have any doubt because that's the exact kid that they were looking at in the video but overall though it's not a bad story it's a it's a pretty entertaining story i pretty much liked it it i dug it a lot more than some of the other stories done um on here um Of course, Wonder Woman doesn't do a whole lot, but then again, that might be just because of the fact that we've got a non-powered hero teamed up with a super-powered hero. That could be part of it. Basically, she does get to take out the guys in the alley at the beginning of the story, and then basically she kind of sits around for the rest of it. And the one time she does get to do something, she tackles the guy after he dropped and causes him to actually drop the bomb, and so kind of messes things up anyway, so... Whatever. Um, also, um, once again, and even which confuses me because we're in, we're looking at a Danny O'Neill written book with Julie Schwartz editing it, but Superman appears to be a full power. I can somewhat understand it in action, maybe with different writer and different editor, but this is the same two guys that have been working on these Superman issues for almost well, almost ten months, and they they, they there, there's this discrepancy which I just don't really understand. Um, also this is the month where DC um, has had to up the price on all their books the mainline price has jumped from 15 cents to 25 cents Uh, however due to the price increase which this is one of the things I liked about especially in the Bronze Age is that whenever they had to up the price they also upped the page count Now, eventually what happens is it's one of those things where they up the page count with the price. Eventually the page count goes down, but the price stays up, and then eventually get to the point where they're going to have to raise the price again. So they add more pages again when they up the price and then go through the whole thing again. So at this point, just about every issue that DC Comics is putting out is at the 48-page length, which means that in addition to the main story, every book has – Uh, like two or three backup stories to go with it and in world's finest while I'm not going to cover them um, I will let you know what else was in here we had a Captain Comet story this is a story that was reprinted from Strange Adventures number 22 from 1952 uh, and it's called the Guardians of the Clockwork Universe Uh, and that's an eight-page story and then there's a Green Arrow story basically featuring uh, what we know now as the Green Arrow of Earth 2, featuring the Rogue of a Thousand Ropes from Adventure Comics number 176. And while we don't know who wrote that story, the art was done by George Papp, uh, who later, would, or at the same time, was doing Superboy stories too, so that's pretty cool. So that's the stories that appeared in World's Finest. And uh, now I'm going to play a promo, and we'll move on to the next book. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Thrilling adventures of Superman: A journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at greatcrypton.com. Presenting Superman. All right, we have Superman 241, also cover dated August of 1971, published on June 15th, 1971, and uh, it's another Neil Adams cover. And what we see is this monster-looking creature with a belt, with a spiked belt, basically crossing a bridge with a sign sign that says you're now leaving New York. So I'm guessing it's supposed to be the Brooklyn Bridge. And in one hand, he's dragging Superman, and in the other hand, he's dragging the sand Superman. And it just says that this introduces the shape of fear. And again, this is for 25 cents, bigger and better. Uh, the, the story on this issue is The Shape of Fear, written by Denny O'Neill, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, edited by Julie Schwartz, and of course Superman's created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this is a story that only gets reprinted in Kryptonite Nevermore. So we start off at, uh, the same way we finished last issue, with Superman standing in the I Ching's apartment I guess, as we see the three thugs from the anti-Superman gang still knocked out on the floor. and. Now he's pretty much saying that he's washed up because he can't be Superman now. But, I Ching asks that he would like to remain uh, like to remain mortal, and Superman says that's exactly what he wishes. He would love to be a normal man, to win through determination and courage, to be no more than himself, and no less. For years, he's dreamed of working and living as a plain man, without the responsibilities and loneliness of Superman. And while we can feel for him, we also must... Uh, remember that this is pretty out of character for him because usually he, f- he likes the response, he knows about the responsibility, but he usually takes a more heroic approach to it. And by the way, he still has that big bruise on his forehead. Um, I Ching tries to get it through to him. Uh, your, under- your attitude is understandable, but I beg you to reconsider. One does not choose responsibility, it is often thrust upon him. To refuse it is to commit the worst act of cowardice. Look around you and see a world burdened with misery and untold agonies. A world which has need of you as you were. So Superman sits back down on the cot with his hands covering his face. It's on him. Alright, prepare your magic. So I Ching first um, basically uses some yogic yogic, almost like yogic yoga magic um, to ensure that the hoods will not awaken before the task is accomplished and now he's going to try using his fingers to pull his spirit form from Superman's body which he does and Superman's psyche or soul or whatever it is leaps out of the room and flies as he used to towards the band shell in Metropolis Park where he comes across the sand Superman just kinda standing there and suddenly he's uh, the sand Superman is drawn up through the roof through some kind of irresistible force, as the powers are pulled from the Sand Superman into whatever this energy being is, and suddenly the Sand Superman drops to the grass and lies twitching, and his clawed fingers reach out and seem to rip a hole in the very fabric of existence itself. Um, wrapped in an aura of power, Superman's spirit flies back to rejoin his body, and when he returns, Ichim notices some kind of a difference. Uh, but he doesn't know if this was successful or not. So Superman re- Spirit returns to his body, and Superman decides he's going to test this out. Uh, using a steel bar, he's able to twist it like a pretzel, like he used to. He goes to open the door, but uh, without realizing his own strength, uh, basically rips it off its hinges. And he flies out into space, seems to have no problem there. Uh, and he comes across a meteoroid. And using his super, super strength, he takes, knocks one good punch into it and basically destroys it. So that's test number two. Um, Superman then flies as fast as he can and pretty much notices he's moving at about ten times the speed of light, which is as quick as the flash. Um, by the way, technically this means he should be passing through time, but uh, so I don't know how he's not, but I do like the squiggly lines that they use. So, um, Superman checks out his vision powers, uh, Using his telescopic vision he's able uh, from space, he's able to read the numbers on the bottom of a coin locked in a basement vault in Moscow, which also means his x-ray vision is working. So he wants to use his abilities, he's itching to use his abilities as he returns to Metropolis and sees his chance when he sees a purse snatcher. So, uh, very quickly, borrowing some, you know, digging a foundation, borrowing some cement and using 20 carloads of granite basically builds a prison around the purse snatcher as he was running. It just takes a few seconds. And uh, unfortunately, he built it in the middle of a busy street during rush hour in Metropolis. And so Superman starts to take it apart as uh, he turns the purse snatcher over to the authorities. Later, uh, at an army artillery range, he asks that, uh, if he can use if he could be the target for their target practice because he'd like to, you know, has to test some vulnerability some more, even though he was in space and that didn't bother him. And he flies out uh, into the target range, and they start shooting at him. And he basically mentions that these 88s are bursting off his skin like a cool rain. And strangely, he actually talks to the soldiers and tells them, "I suppose it's been quite a privilege for you having such a distinguished target." And, of course, the soldiers all remarked that he's basically talking nutty. And as Superman flies off, he says, let them know next time they want to test an H-bomb or something. Uh, a few days later, we get Diana Prince again reading the headlines, uh, the daily news record, uh, with I Ching mentioning that Superman's goofed up again, fixing a leaky pipe. He wrecked an entire water system, and that's basically the fifth mistake he's made since, you know, his powers were restored so i-chain calls kent or calls clark uh, and begs to have superman meet him in new york at the empire state Building. Uh, clark agrees and about an hour later superman's in new york and sees a red convertible speeding he mentions that no crime is too small for his attention and uh, basically picks up the car and leaves it on top of the empire state building where as he meets with i-chain so this of course. Leaves the guards to wonder what they're going to do because it's going to cost a fortune to get that car down from the top of the Empire State Building. And the fact that the car is interfering with TV transmissions. In a secret area, or hidden area, I Ching and Superman talk about the fact that uh, I Ching believes is that uh, his brain was injured when he got hit clocked on the head by the butt of the gun, and that with his powers restored it's made the change per- permanent, and he's now suffering from brain damage. Superman says that's nonsense, it's the silliest thing he's ever heard, and then starts going on about he's just jealous and weak because he's weak, punches through the wall, and then flies off, which just leaves more proof that I Ching's actually correct. So back in I Ching's apartment uh, we see that Diana's down there and he decides that he needs to find out more of what's going on. So I Ching uses some dark magic and creates basically a pale globe of flame and it's supposed to find the sand creature. So they follow it down the streets of New York into Central Park to find Superman, uh, the sand Superman laying there. I Ching uh, knows that he's a creature from the realm of Quarm, which is is a state of alternate possibilities, a place where neither men nor things exist, only unformed, shapeless beings. So now we're finally going to get the origin of the Sand Superman. We return to to Superman trying to save the day from the kryptonite engine, uh, and apparently the explosion that, was, that was that resulted actually opened a rift between earth and the realm of quom and it passed over Superman's unconscious body and sunk into the desert sand where Superman was laying there and then of course later on he was slowly gradually the bits of sand were able to change and take form and become alive and slowly over time he had a psychic link with Superman and there was been, there was an exchange of powers every time. And, of course, the Man of Steel grew progressively weaker as the Quarmer grew stronger until, basically, they became equals. Now, at this point, we're back in the present, and the Quarmer uh, mentions that his strength and flight and invulnerability have been removed as well as most of the intelligence, and states that he's reverting to nothingness. Uh, But Ai-Ching realizes that if the sand creature came in contact with Superman uh, he would regain what he's lost and Superman would lose it again and realizes that they need to make this happen. Uh, so they head off towards the city. Meanwhile, that hole that he scratched into the very fabric of reality, uh, something, another invisible mist escapes, a.k.a. another quorum creature. So now they they go to the well, Diana and Ching go to the lavish penthouse atop the Galaxy building where Morgan Edge lives. They break, in, basically break into Edge's office and use the phone to call Clark. I don't know why they had to call him from there. Uh, Diana mentions that he was nasty on the phone from a hidden room. It's soundproof and has a trick mirror, a a mystery man in complete shadow watches the three creatures because the Sand Man's with them uh, as they go through Oyage's office. We don't know who it is, but apparently we're going to find out in due time. Uh, meanwhile, uh, down in Chinatown, there's a mammoth parade going on, and the Quarmer enters a Oriental war demon. Uh, it's basically just a statue, and it, of course, comes to life, and starts wreaking havoc. Meanwhile, uh, Superman enters Edge's apartment by using the wall, and asks why Diana, Diana called, asking if she just wanted his autograph. So she says, no, she just wanted to give him a kiss, and suddenly he feels the a pull at the roots of his being, and sees the as the sand creature enters the room, and Superman escapes as fast as he can, and... Um, so the sand creature gives chase. And I Ching basically says that he's worried that we've unleashed that they have unleashed willful forces upon the world and he sense impending disaster. So as Superman flies along, he's tried, decide, he decides he's going to try to elude the thing in the cloud banks, and flies down and all, all of a sudden he sees people moving in a panic and escape and just abandoning cars in the middle of the city. And he sees a young child about to get trampled by the mob so he goes and catches them and puts him in a safe place and as he flies off to see what's going on he suddenly gets really dizzy and sick and basically falls unconscious onto the ground as he's picked up by the creature in the statue and is dragged off and that's the end of the superman story or the new superman story in this issue This was a pretty cool story. It does ramp things up because we're almost finished. But uh, let's keep going. Uh, Let me go over the notes. Pages one and two, like I said, uh, it's very out of character, and I even noted here, even though I read it before, but I was like, could the blow to his head have been to blame? Because that, obviously, his out of characterness was our first clue. Probably from last issue also, was our first clue that something's wrong with Superman. Pages six through nine. There, uh, once again, we have a pacing problem from an O'Neill book. Uh, it's nighttime still when Superman leaves uh, Ching's apartment, tests out his powers real quick, and heads back to Earth. And suddenly, it's not only is it daylight, but it's rush hour in Metropolis. Um, and I don't understand how catching a purse snatcher is a good exercise of his powers. Page 14. The sand creatures in Central Park, just a few pages ago, he was laying, He was laying there, unable to move, ripping a hole in the fabric of reality in Metropolis Park. But now we see him laying there with the same hole in in Central Park in New York. Is there some confusion? Uh, This is not the only time it happens. Somehow, I don't know how close they're supposed to be at this point, but somehow the galaxy building where Morgan Edge lives is in New York. But it's supposed to be a metropolis. I'm almost wondering if there was some error on the letterer's part, error on O'Neill's part, getting them confused, or what. But this isn't, you know, we're not matching things up right now. Um, and other than a panel on the second page of the book where Superman kind of looks off again, like I posted a few uh, episodes back, the art in this issue is actually really good. Uh, a lot more of um, swan's pencils are shining through and either we're finally getting to the art like they had like they've been having in action or we're finally getting to a point where Murphy Anderson is getting starting to mesh more and get more comfortable with swan's pencils which is a very welcome sight to behold uh... like i mentioned before uh, once again we have a twenty five cent issue forty eight pages which means we've got two backups this time uh... not a new story not a krypton story uh, but this time we've got um, a story reprinted from Superman 112 from uh, March of 57. Uh, Superman's Neighbors. I know it's an eight page story. And um, it's ironic uh, reading the other characters that we learned at the, his other uh, Clark's, uh, first of all, his apartment address of 344 Clinton Street uh, is first mentioned in this story. And some of his fellow neighbors are Miss Wentworth, Harry Merton, uh, yes, Harry Merton, Mrs. Higgins, Tommy Sneed, Joe Rollins, and Alex Ross, uh, who, as most, of, or I'm sure everyone out there knows, uh, Alex Ross is a pretty popular um, artist in the comic industry these days, but he hasn't done a whole whole lot of stuff lately. Well, last couple years anyway. Um, but um, he's more of a paint artist than your traditional pencil and ink. But um, yeah, those were his neighbors. This is the only time we ever see those neighbors. Uh, by the time we actually get uh, repeat, uh, repeat neighbors, it's not any of these people. Uh, but that was from... Uh, the 50s. And then we also have Superman's Day of Truth reprinted from Superman, 70, uh, Superman 176 from, 60, from April of 65. And um, that's actually a Leo Dorfman story. So that's interesting. Um, basically, that's it for Superman. So we're going to play a few promos and um, come back with our final uh, issue of the month. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. and more. Superman Homepage.com Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics Magazine. Welcome back and this time we're going to have Action Comics number 403. Uh, another August issue. This one actually came out on June 29, 1971. This one features a cover by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson. And we see basically Superman uh, laying there with the, the sleeves of his, um, shirt have been pulled up. Uh, we see a dot, uh, we see that tubes are, uh, hooked to his arms like IVs, and it's all colored red, and there's a giant tube above him. And, uh, we have a doctor saying, I warn you, donors, as we begin the transfusion, your blood will save Superman or kill him. But we have no choice. It's a risk we, much, we must take. And um, we see this long line of people stretching back to, uh, actually being hidden by the a word bloom, but I'm guessing it's going it's supposed to go all the way back to the horizon of people ready to donate their blood to apparently help Superman. So this is pretty cool. The title of this story is The Attack of the Micro Murderer, written by Carrie Bates, art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor is Murray Boltanoff. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, and once again, none of the stories reprinted in this issue have or printed in this issue have never been reprinted. Okay, far back in the dim recess of the ice age a savage killers executed by his tribe. In the 12th century, an entire kingdom watches their queen's assassin put to death. During the winter of 1775, a traitor faces a firing squad during the revolutionary war, and a century ago, a ruthless desperado pays the maximum penalty for his crimes. But would you believe that all four of these culprits are the same person? Turn the page and you'll see him die again. And we turn the page and we get a pretty cool double page spread, although only really the top half of the page is the spread, as we see a helicopter crash into a radio tower, as and of course that copter is being chased by Superman, and we see the the pilot actually slamming kind of through the window of the helicopter and hitting the tower full on. He basically tells Superman that this is a humiliating death um, and that, mark his words, a Zot, like him, has lived and lost many lives and he has many more ahead of him and he will summon him from the future where he'll be ready to take him on again as he dies. Uh, Superman sees that there's a space plane coming and says that the guy was just delirious. But that night in the Fortress of Solitude, he, uh, Superman realizes he can't get what the crook's death threat out of his mind. Um, so he programs a supercomputer to give him all the available data on the word Zot. Um, and I don't know how he knows how to spell it, because it's Z-O-H-T-T. It doesn't really seem like something you know how to spell, but he's, uh, apparently he spells it correctly. And we learn that a Zot is a magical, wrath-like being that has existed in this in this solar system for centuries. Inherently evil, it must occupy the bodies of other, li- other living creatures, turning them malicious for the rest of their lives. Uh, we all, and of course, once a host body has died, Zot must occupy another life form within 24 hours, or the wrath will expire. Zot is able to penetrate every known element in the solar system except sulfur. So basically what, we're, what we've are what we learned is that this we're about to have a similar creature to the Quorum creatures from Superman. So Superman wonders how long it's going to be before the Zod uh, strikes again. But the next morning in his office, uh, Clark's desk suddenly becomes red hot and shakes. And there's an explosion as basically his uh, Clark outfit is burned away. And he needs to figure out a way to prevent anyone from coming in and seeing him, you know, half in and half out of costume. So faster than the eye can see and faster than a swan can draw, there's now a sign on Clark's door that says, experimenting with sound effect tapes, please do not disturb. So that pretty much works. Um, Suddenly there's a red tube that looks like it's vibrating, uh, basically saying that it's a temporal transmitter. My voice is coming to you on March 28th, the day after I died, trying to escape you, Superman. And, of course, Superman realizes it's the Zot, but this time it's in a female's voice, even though I read it as a deep male voice. Bear with me. Um, You're hearing me from the year 3486, where I exist in another life. If you don't follow the transmitter back through the time barrier, many innocent people will die in this era. I promise you. So, Superman uses his powers to rebuild the desk that was destroyed by that explosion. And then basically flying around very fast, follows the <laughs> uh, the vibrating tube back through time, which I don't think he can actually do in an office, but for the sake of the story, he will here, and finds himself in, of course, 3486, and sees a woman's body floating in some kind of an open casket type thing but it's a see-through casket but apparently she's already dead and as superman gets close uh, Superman feels a uh, seething pain in every fiber of his body so superman's wondering what has happened and he's starting to feel weak and queasy and turns out um, that Superman doesn't know what's happening but it's starting to you know really affect him And he has a raging fever, which, of course, Superman doesn't normally get. So he decides he's going to tear the place apart until he finds out exactly how he was weakened. And we literally see him breaking things, knocking things out, punching through stuff, and using his heat vision to melt things. While he also says that this doesn't really do him any good because things are so futuristic that he wouldn't recognize the cause of his problems, even if he found it. Suddenly, a strange screen rises from the floor. And we see this, uh, we get here a recording. This video message was pre-recorded before my death, Superman. If you're wondering how I cracked your invulnerability and weakened you, the credit goes to this remarkable woman, a microbiologist, whose mind I occupy at this moment. With her scientific genius, I've spent years synthesizing and nurturing a certain species of, of microorganism. I had to sacrifice her life to infect you but I'm sure it's obvious by now your body is already poisoned. The microbe is a fantastically deadly strain, which will prove fatal even to a Superman. You at most have two more days to live, Superman. Enjoy them. So basically, Superman realizes that the reason the casket was open is so that the germ could pass on to him. So he flies back through the time stream back to 1971 and heads to his fortress. His body is growing even hotter, but his powers haven't been affected yet. So he realizes probably the only place he can be saved is Candor. So using his microwave beamer, he starts to shrink himself, but the Zot inside mentions that its magical abilities make it immune to the shrinking effect and basically uses its body to block Superman's aorta artery, causing him to have a slight heart attack. So Superman stops the uh, microwave beamer uh, with his heat vision. Of course, Kandor calls and asks why he just did that, because it's going to take weeks to repair it. Um, but Superman explains what's happening. But unfortunately, without the, without the uh, beamer, now the Kandorians have no way of transporting any of their super blood up to him to help him. So Superman asks, what about Earth blood? And they have to mention that it really can't compare... Uh, However, if there's a huge quantity of it and it's somehow pumped through his veins at a fantastic rate, the micro might be flushed out, but it would require hundreds of gallons of blood. So uh, the next morning, Superman uh, makes an urgent message as he uh, interrupts regular GBS programming, uh, basically asking all of the city of Metropolis to donate blood to him because his life literally rests in their hands. So uh, while we see some people basically telling us, the reader, what exactly Superman has done to help them, why they are there to give blood, we also see that Lois has already given double the amount and would give more, but you know it's not any really good for her to do so. But uh, literally uh, by that in that day, Superman, we basically have hundreds of gallons worth of blood to transfuse into Superman using his super nails, Superman is able to make a hole for the tubes on both of his arms and they set everything up and run the machine that Superman has constructed to basically use a large, uh, basically pressurized blood to go through his body at a fantastic rate. Now they turn it on and Superman actually stiffens. This um, basically, it's Got enough pressure, terrific enough to rip apart a 100-foot dam, and we see Superman visibly in pain and actually shaking. However, uh, while we see the gush of, of going through his vein like a tidal wave, um, eventually it stops. Seconds later, and Superman just lies there calmly. But suddenly, he gets up alive. But the mi- excuse me—the microbe is still in there taking refuge in a lymph node away from the bloodstream, so unfortunately it didn't work. So, Superman takes off, waiting for Death to claim his body, basically saying it's not going to work. Um, basically saying you know, he gives up. Uh, back at Stanhope College, we see Linda Danvers watching TV, finding out that it didn't work, and she's all upset. And the reason she hasn't uh, tried to help is because they have different blood types so his body would only reject her super blood and hasten his death anyway so she's upset because superman's going to die as superman flies over the earth we see that um, cities across a good portion of the united states have turned on or off their lights to create uh, basically a super s across part of the continent it looks like it basically stretches from northern texas um, all the way up to about Michigan, with the bottom point of the S right about Louisiana. So I'd, I'm proud to say that my current <clears throat> my current home state of Oklahoma appears to be right in the middle of that S. So way to go, Oklahoma. Although they did pick the one part of the country that probably doesn't have enough flights to actually do that. Unfortunately, um, they probably should have picked the East Coast, but whatever. Um, my old home state of Maryland doesn't seem to be carrying at all, so... Oh, to you guys, uh, so Superman apparently has another has a comes a, a goat heads to a basic a special barrier ground he created for himself. Looks like it's kind of on a moon or an asteroid, and uh, Superman lays down on a slab and basically dies. Uh, his heart stops pumping blood, and um, The Zot leaves his body, but unfortunately, being on the moon, or wherever he is, there is not another life form for millions of miles for him to occupy, so therefore, he's going to die, or it's going to die. And this time, the Zot gets a pre-recorded message from Superman. And it says, This was pre-recorded before my death. You killed me, but you also unknowingly doomed yourself. Without so much as a molecule of life to thrive on, you'll perish in a few hours. Either both of us live, or both of us die. If you want to live, then re-enter my body and occupy my heart. Your magical powers can start it beating again, but you'd will but you better decide before it's too late. So, with no choice left to him, the Zot re-enters Superman's body. But suddenly, we see the table that Superman was on Twirl a uh, turn, and now there's two Superman turns. As it turns out, the real Superman was on one side, and of course, since he, as we all know, Superman has super willpower and can actually cause him to, cause his body to stop beating temporarily. And we see him basically rip out a synthetic heart from a um, an android, a, a Superman android. I guess leftover from what he just, you know, deactivated a couple months ago. And this synthetic heart is actually made of sulfur, so the Zot cannot leave it. And uh, now that the Zot is out of his system, Superman's an- super antibodies have already wiped out that microbe, so that's not going to work. And Superman flies back to Earth. Uh, I guess to, to take it back to his fortress to, to hide it in a safe place. So, that story is pretty interesting. But uh, let's see how. Let's see. I do have some notes. Again, we don't know how he knows how to spell Zot. Um, but it is pretty cool that something that gets this close to killing him or it sounds very much like Zod, I guess. Page 5. Um. Like I said, I don't know... For one thing, I don't know if it's safe for Superman to go into the time stream through his office, but also I don't think he actually physically could do that. The force that he's putting out would cause the thing to, like, explode, I would imagine. Um, But anyway, uh, page six, we do get some more ugly art, a little bit. Um, I don't know, it's just something with that one... It's almost like one or two angles that just doesn't work. Um, And then also... Uh, when Superman's first realizing that he's got the fever, he looks pretty possessed. It Actually, sort of looks like something I, um, I've seen from Dan Jerkins when he first started on the books. It's almost like his eyebrows get extra bushy, and it, it gets really dark around his eyes, and he just looks really mad. It looks like he's possessed. It's really kind of strange. Um, but it's, I also thought it was kind of funny on page 7 that if Superman was not going to recognize what the cause is, why is he still destroying stuff? Why didn't he come to that realization? As soon as he walked in, and said, what the, I'm not going to know what I'm doing here. But anyway, uh, like I said, it's not a bad story. And other than on page six, the art on this story is really well done. And um, the only thing is the idea of the story. Basically, Superman uh, chasing the helicopter causes him to crash into a radio tower and somehow after all those other deaths this is the one death that is embarrassing enough that he actually spends the next 1515 years explaining his revenge wow and i thought luther was bad i mean this guy's been killed by so, by his own tribe he's been killed by a kingdom he's been killed by firing squad i mean what the heck that's just i don't know that just seems really crazy to me i mean luther is bad i mean at this point he's got a pretty bad origin but spending over 1500 years planning the revenge because superman made you crash into a radio tower and die wow anyway the second story uh is called the man with the x-ray mind with a story by jeff brown art by kurt swan and luffy anderson uh, editor is, again, Murray Boltonoff, and Superman, again, is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And this is a secret chapter in the life of Clark Kent. We see Superman return to Earth, and he's got a real schedule today, but he's not heading to Galaxy Broadcasting or his fortress. He's actually heading to Metropolis University, for this is a story that takes place during co- Clark's college days. He enters an old storm drain that leads to a room in the university basement, and as he's switching back to clark there's a knock on the door and um we hear better hurry mr kent or you'll be late for your classes so clark leaves uh, uh, exits the room and sees that it's mr lundgren the janitor and he asks how he knew he was in the storm room the storage room and he starts to explain when suddenly uh, Clark's prof- psychology teacher Professor Borwin enters the room and talks to Lundgren really quick because apparently he threw accidentally threw away a bunch of exam papers and he needs to find them because they're not supposed to be in the trash. So uh, Clark uses his x-ray vision to find the papers, but it would take an ordinary being hours to find it that way. But um, Mr. Lundgren actually just looks in his bucket, sees the piles of papers are actually by a uh, discarded typewriter ribbon. And basically, digs, starts digging through the pile of papers as Clark looks at the water and sees that there's nothing really, any, it's just regular water. But uh, Mr. Lundgren pulls the papers out without any problems. Clark wonders if he has X ray vision, but uh, the professor basically just says, uh, basically just flat out asked how he did it. And Lundgren admits that he's got the power of Skyring the ability to read secrets and mysteries from the reflection in water or crystal or mirror and that he inherited from his mother so they start decide to perform some tests and uh the professor has some cards he's going to um set out shows them an example of each card there's cart cards with a star circle across a box or a square sorry and um two wavy lines so Lundgren stands on the other side of this little barrier, holding a mirror. As the professor places the cards out in a certain order, and basically he just goes right through through it without getting any part of it wrong. He per- perfectly tells them what cards he's put out. So then the professor tries it again, and starts putting the cards down. And every time Lundgren gets it wrong, uh, turns out what Clark notices though is that he didn't get him wrong. He's basically predicting the card that the professor's about to put down. So basically this means that he also can kind of prophesy or see into the future a little bit. So they decide they're going to keep this whole thing secret and that apparently and Lundgren then reveals to Clark that he knows he's Superman and he just saw something in his water pail. a railroad accident's about to happen at the Cross Bay Bridge. So Clark says, um, "Okay, I'm heading out that way." So he flies out to the bridge as the as a train is about to, you know, cross it. Superman, of course, doesn't see anything, but then, of course, sees that for some reason the lift bridge, which is it, of course lifts up so that you know larger boats can pass under it, suddenly is. Uh, lifts up for no reason meaning that the speeding train heading towards the opening will probably would just fall right off the tracks and into the water so but fortunately superman was there and catches the train and takes it to the other side and safely allows it to continue on uh, but that night um uh the professor ha- puts lundgren's power to a more sinister use um by having him help him uh, open a door to, let's see, uh, the Physics Department Atomic Experimental Division. Specifically, it says to keep out. Lundgren doesn't want to help because looking in the water, he sees there's going to be an explosion because he keeps his trusty bucket with him wherever he goes. Um, The professor says, nonsense, let's do this, come on. So basically Lundgren uh, uses his ability to help him figure out the lock combination. And the professor decides he's going to use this because uh, it it's, it's, gets inside and finds the what he's been looking for, which is an isotope and an radio and okay basically he's found an atomic formula. it's radioactive shielded in a special lead glass case uh, which will transmute any metal into gold and the lab staff actually developed it which should make them Cajillions of mon- uh, amounts of money, but I don't know, I guess they haven't announced that they've done it yet. Uh, unfortunately, the professor picks it up, holds it, but it slips out of his hand, hits the ground, and there's an it causes a giant explosion. Superman, fortunately, uh, who just happened to be checking on Lundgren with his telescopic vision, uh, lands in time to block most of the explosion. Unfortunately, uh, well, Blocks most of the explosion from hitting Lundgren, but the professor is basically killed. Not not basically. The professor is killed. Um, Superman wraps Lundgren up in his cave and flies him to the college infirmary. Lundgren wakes up, but basically has lost most of his memory. Um, He remembers his name. Uh, but he doesn't remember the explosion, or even Superman. And we, our final panel, uh, we see Clark watching as Lundgren is mowing the grass. Basically, um, they keep him; he can't do his actual job anymore because he can't remember his chores from day to day. But the the university is still keeping him for on for odd jobs at a charity. And that's the end of that story. It's a nice little story. Um, uh, On the first page, um, once again, we get Jeff Brown or Leo Dorfman, however you want to look at it, um, coming up with a new saying for Clark, or Superman, I guess, that really doesn't get used much. Well, I don't think it was used before and probably doesn't get used again, but great sons of space. Wow, that's an interesting one. On page two, Um, okay, and page two, something is pretty much brought out to me that causes some eh in my mind. Okay, Clark and, and the professor seem to know Lundgren like he's been there for quite a while. But the way Lundgren doesn't seem to be secretive at all about his ability, that means I would imagine that there's lots of people around the campus that know about it. Which kind of strikes me as weird because I would think that other people would try to use it or talk about it or that, you know, this would be a big deal, he would have been on the news, someone would have made a big deal about it, but I guess it's no big deal. Um, Now, we also see that apparently on page 5, Lundgren admits that he's known about uh, Clark's secret identity for years. How long has Clark been going to college? I mean, maybe two years could be years, but usually that's something for, like, several years. Like, maybe he somehow knew it when he was a superboy in Smallville, but I highly doubt it. Um, anyway, um, one of the a few things I, other, I also noted, uh, the rest of the story is actually not bad. Um, sort of getting tired of people in Clark's life uh, suddenly having these alternative Ulterior motives. They're good. Pe- they seem to be good people. Clark doesn't suspect anyone of anything, but a whole bunch of them seem to have these ulterior motives that involve, you know, get-rich-quick schemes and basically bad guy stuff. Um, Kurt, I don't know if it's just to distinguish the fact that this is a younger Clark, but Swan seems to be employing the Dick Dillon. Let's give Clark a spit curl um, motif here. As Clark's hair, it never actually gets put up the way it normally does when he's Superman, or when he's Clark. Uh, It's not as defined a spit curl as it is um, when he's Superman, but he definitely has the wave of hair across his forehead. And, um, let's see, what else? Um, I do like the art on the story, other than that little bit. um, It's really cool art. And it's a pretty entertaining little uh, eight page story, so I thought it was really good. Um, So that's it for this month. Uh, Really quick, let's go over what's going on in the rest of the DC multiverse. Uh, Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at www.dcindexes.com. And we're looking at all the other books that were on sale by DC Comics in June of 1971. We've got Forever People number four. Uh, featuring the Sod uh, and the Kingdom of the Damned. Uh, we've got House of Secrets number 93 uh, with a cool Bernie Wrightson cover. We've got Our Army at War number 235. Uh, basically, with apparently Sergeant Rock's about to get shipped back to the States. And we have flash number 208. Wow, flash 208. Um, and we see, it's a cool Neil Adams cover, but we see a out, uh, flash outside of a church. And he's running and wondering what he's doing there inside. We see a, a lady, looks like it could even be a nun, praying to St. Jude, asking for a miracle. And it's like, hmm. And of course there's an elongated man flashback. Er, Backup story. Jimmy Olsen's pal, no, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 140, is a big 64-page reprint issue with a cool Kurt Swan Murphy Anderson cover uh, featuring out-of-this-world adventures um, as Superman and Jimmy are the crime fighters of Kandor, uh, Nightwing, and Flamebird. Uh, we have the world of the Doom Dolcens, which shows uh, Jimmy in several of his costumes, including Turtle Boy and um, Elastic Lad. And then we have one where uh, Jimmy and Superman are fugitives. And we have Swing with Scooter number 35. And... We also have the question, how much of Dave Riordan is somebody? Wow, I uh, sweet. Wow, I can't even read that. Um, uh, we have Scooter number 35, uh, world's finest, of course. All-Star Western number seven, presenting Outlaw, as well as Davy Crockett, Buffalo Bill, and El Diablo in the other stories. And by the way, I should point out that just, that just about every issue on here has the same... 25 cents bigger and better now. Uh, blurb on the covers. We have Binky number 80. Oh, I get it. The Sweet Pain of Frank Dim uh, is mentioned on this one. And of course, the other one would be Sweet Pain again. Uh, Justice League of America number 91, uh, which has The Monster Maker. And it's got a really cool cover. And this is a Neil Adams cover through and through, but Batman is carrying the Flash, saying the Flash is dead. Which one of us will be next? And apparently this is a Justice Society, Justice League team-up issue because we have the Superman of both Earth-1 and Earth-2. We have the Flash of Earth-1 and Earth-2. We have the Green Lantern of Earth-1 and Earth-2. We have Hawkman of Earth-1 and Earth-2. We see the Atom of Earth-1 and Earth-2 and Robin of Earth-1 and Earth-2. And as I'm recalling, I'm thinking that this story has uh, a temporary new costume for Robin, which actually is the one that the Earth-2 Robin will later adopt. So that's probably got to be a pretty cool story. Um, We have Batman number 234, The Return of Two-Face in Half and Evil. And we have Falling in Love number 125, um, what the... Which also reveals how to develop a beautiful body. And let's see. Next up, we have GI Combat 149, uh, which again has the haunted tank about to be covered, uh, about to have a tower com- crumble down onto it. We have The Witching Hour number 16, uh, with a weird-looking cover by Nick Carty. We have Brave and the Bold, number 97, featuring a team-up between Batman and Wildcat. We have New Gods, number 4, and uh, with Orion meeting the Orion's Ra- Mob Orion's Mob, and the Deep Six. So that looks pretty cool. We have a 100-page spectacular, number 4, weird mystery tales, with a weird-looking creature on the front on the Bernie Wrightson cover. Looks really cool, actually, though, with the lighting and stuff. Uh, We have Star-Spangled War Stories, number 158. Basically looks like a concentration camp image on the front cover, so that's pretty heavy for 1971, I would think. Um, Young Romance, number 173. with Asking the question, does he love you? Read his palm. And there's a poetry contest. Yay! We have From Beyond the Unknown, number 12. Uh, We have Heartthrobs, number 133. uh, which also reveals how to get the grooviest guy at the party. Wow. Uh, We have Sugar and Spike, number 97. And then we have um, Girls Love Stories, number 161, with the diet to make you beautiful. I don't know if I'd want to get my diet advice from a comic book. Uh, We have Green Lantern, number 85, which is the infamous cover of Green Lantern revealing to Green Arrow that Speedy is a junkie. We have Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 112. Showing Superman turning into a tree, and now this is a monthly book, which I kind of thought it was before. Maybe it was one of those ten issues a year things. Um, we have Unexpected number one twenty-six with another cool uh, Nick Cardi cover, uh, which actually has a little invitation. You are cordially invited to die. And we see a man in a wheelchair uh, and the Grim Reaper. So that looks (laughs) that looks like a really cool story um then we have adventure comics number 409 uh featuring supergirl in the invasion of the merman and she's actually talking to a guy named jeff g-e-o-f-f apparently no one at dc comics ever knows how to spell jeff with a j-e-f-f because between jeff brown this jeff and of course jeff johns and then jeff loeb spells it his weird too i don't does anyone know how to does anyone spell it the usual way at DC Comics ever. Uh, but anyway, we see Supergirl in another weird costume. This one is barely a costume. Uh, she's got what looks like shorts on. I don't know how that front is staying up. And she's got her cape, but mostly she's exposed. I mean, I've never seen that much skin on Supergirl, even now with the the way Michael Turner designed the new her current costume. Wow. Um, and then Finally, we have Detective Comics number 414, featuring The Legend of the Key Hook Lighthouse, which is another really awesome Neil Adams cover, which I really can't describe. You have to see it. And that's pretty much it. Um, before we go, I just want to, or before we go, before I go, I would just like to uh, mention, uh, please make sure you check out my and several uh, other Superman podcasts at www.FortressOfBailey2.com Superman Podcast Network. Uh, all the shows on there are awesome. I've listened to all of them. Well, at least one episode of all of them. I'm trying to catch up on them. Uh, but you really should check them out. They've, they all come out pretty much on schedule. And would do yourself good if you're a Superman fan to check all these shows out. But basically with all those shows, you have every aspect of Superman covered. From current news to the movies to Smallville to covering Golden Age comics, the Silver Age comics, the Bronze Age comics, the From Crisis to Crisis era, the post-infinite crisis era of the books, plus uh, several of those also cover things like the TV show, the radio show, the comic strips, toys, promotions, everything. Superman is very well taken care of these days. And, of course, when get through all that there's also the great the audio dramas so you've got everything you're gonna want in superman right there all in one spot and please make sure you also check out superman again i want to send another thank you to steve humans for posting these shows up there and i want to thank uh, say hello and thank all the new people who have downloaded the show um, it's been really amazing to just be able to double this almost uh... my the number of people that download the episode in less than a week. So, uh, thank you all very much. Um, you have a great week, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at unbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com, or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section, and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless. man is also a copyrighted feature appearing in the Superman DC publications.